BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So as the economy falls through the floor, let's check in with a real economist on this. Professor Richard Wolff is on the line with us. He is an economist, a professor of economics, co-founder of Democracy at Work. Democracyatwork.info is the website, his personal website, rdwolf with two fs.com. You can tweet him at profwolf with two fs. He's the author of numerous books, his most recent, Understanding Socialism. Professor Wolf, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. So I don't have a lot of very specific questions for you. I would love to hear your thoughts on, number one, what the Fed is doing in relation to our entire economic system, the banking system and all this kind of thing. I mean, we've, seen, we've been seeing bonds behaving in ways they're not supposed to because people are dumping them so frantically to cover margin calls and things like that. And to what extent might the Fed be able to ameliorate some of this? And what should Congress be doing? You know, what, or what are your thoughts in general on all this? Well, to be as blunt and, and yet to retain at least some politeness, let me say that this is the most colossal failure of a system that I have ever seen. I wasn't alive at the time of the Great Depression, so elderly folks who were might correct me on this. The fundamental reality is this. There was no planning for this catastrophe, and that's a failure of our private sector, and that's a failure of the government. Because it isn't profitable for ventilator makers and test kit makers and all the other parts of the medical industrial complex. It doesn't pay them to produce goods that sit on a shelf waiting for a disaster. It doesn't pay them to stockpile those kinds of things. It doesn't pay the hospitals already squeezed in this country by Medicare and Medicaid reimbursements that are too low to maintain hospital beds in the event of this kind of a crisis. So the government didn't make sure it happened, and the private sector, driven by profitability, didn't either. And that is a mistake, and that is a failure, because we are going to, we have already lost more money by this crisis than it would have cost to do all of those things. So it's not that we can't do it as a society, but we are in a society where profit is the number one item, the priority, the goal, the bottom line. And when you have that as your bottom line, public health comes a distant second, and we're now living out that contradiction. 
number one. Number two, equivalent to the lack of planning in the realm of health of our people is the lack of planning of what to do in the event of the kind of emergency. Even if we were better equipped medically to deal with it, there would have had to be in place the facilities, the logic, the planning, uh, how to cope with a crisis like this. And it's not as though we haven't had it. The Great Depression was supposed to have taught us all kinds of lessons. Even more recently, the, the collapse of the market in the early months of 2000 around the dot-com crash, or then again in 2008 and nine around the second great mortgage disaster. We have had, because of our capitalist system, multiple crashes. We were supposed to have learned lessons. But the real lesson that we should have learned is that if you don't fundamentally change this system, as fast as you make a reform, the interests hurt by those reforms undo them. We passed, just to take the most gross example, 1933, the Banking Act, otherwise known as Glass-Steagall. The banks didn't want it. They fought it. When they lost that battle and it got passed, they went to work. And over the intervening years, first they evaded it, then they weakened it, and under the presidency of Bill Clinton, they finally got it repealed, a repeal that Bill Clinton, and I only mention that because the Democrats are as responsible here as the Republicans, he, you know, signed it, and so it became the law. What that was was a, an example of the reform being undone because reforms just don't go far enough. Okay, with that background, what you're seeing now is more reforms. I can't tell you, nobody can, whether they will be sufficient. You may have noticed that we went from a few billion dollars a few days ago to now a few trillion. That gives you an idea of the out-of-controlness of the people we refer to as our leaders. But the reality is we don't know what to do beyond the reforms, and we're barely able to get our heads around them. And that's not because we aren't smart, and that's not because people at the top don't have brains. They do, but they are hampered by a system that focuses their attention and makes their acts work in such a way that we are in the total mess we're in now. Yeah, remarkable. Just looking at total curative beds per thousand people, and China has 4.9 beds per thousand people. France has 4.1 beds. This is hospital beds per thousand people. Germany has 6.2 hospital beds per thousand people. Japan has 7.9 beds per, per thousand people. The United States has 2.5. Yeah, it's beyond words. The story with the ventilators is the same. The, the story with the test kits. Uh, China now has a test kit that can get you the answer whether you are infected or not within a matter of, I believe, three hours, which is a time advantage in a period of rapid spread so we can isolate people and quarantine and prevent the spread. We don't use them. Uh, I did a tweet earlier today about how the Italian government, when it didn't get the help it wanted from the EU, turned to China, that's many, many weeks ago, got massive help from China compared to our government, which spends its time insulting and otherwise alienating. China, when we don't have comparable tests, it's, it's stupefying, but it is, again, a, a consequence of a system that is simply not geared to putting the priority on the public health that the public needs and wants. We have about a little, a little less than a minute and a half, 
And I had written a post for our Facebook page and for buzzflash.com saying that we are entering Great Depression territory. And you know, it took 100% of GDP to get us out of, uh, out of the Great Depression. We need to be looking at, over the next 12 to 18 months, a 10 to $15 trillion package to support the American people. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. And the reason it makes sense is look at the so far two most successful responses, the Chinese and the South Korean. By the way, quite different in their ideological persuasions of their leaders and so on. They mobilized everything. They mobilized the private sector. They mobilized the public sector. They were able to do that because they don't have an ideology in either country. And whether you call this socialist, capitalist, or anything else really is now secondary. They don't have an ideology that puts the private sector in some priority position so that the government is hamstrung and cannot mobilize uh, that part of the society, especially when that's the major part which it is in this country. So we lack that. But that's an ideological craziness of the American society that it has, in the name of freedom, failed to organize itself to deal with such a crisis. Right. And we've seen a, 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 I believe we went from one and a half million hospital beds nationwide in in, uh, 2000 or in the the late 1980s to, uh, well, we lost about 500,000 hospital beds is my record. That's right. Anyhow, Professor Richard Wolf, democracywork.info. Thank you, sir. Thank you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you over at the Washington Post. There is uh, one of the more shocking stories that I've read in the last uh, week or two as this uh, coronavirus crisis has been sweeping across our country. At the same time, that South Korea, Singapore, and Japan have this largely under control. And China. China reported no new cases overnight. Zero. They had uh, 34 cases that were diagnosed overnight. Every single one of them was somebody who had arrived on a plane in the last 14 14 days and been under quarantine. But this story in the Washington Post just shocked me to my core. It's by Christopher Rowland. It was published on 318. I'll just share pieces with you. But keep in mind what Richard Wolf just said, Professor Wolf just said. One of the reasons why hospitals don't have enough ventilators is because ventilators are expensive. They cost twenty-five dollars to $50,000 each. Plus, there's the expense of training staff to use them. And $25,000 doesn't sound like a lot of money to me, frankly, if I was running a hospital. I mean, hospitals are multi-million dollar operations. But when you're a for-profit company and you're rationing pencils, I mean, I, you know, I have relatives who work in two different hospitals. They literally tell you, you're using too many ballpoint pens. When you work in a company where they ration everything because the bean counters are watching over everything because the stockholder dividends and the CEO's paycheck depends on how profitable the hospital is, then $25,000 is a hell of a lot of money. So here's this piece by Christopher Rowland in the Washington Post. He starts out, the lack of ventilators and growing calls for a more aggressive government role to fill the gap was the subject of tense exchanges this week between President Trump and state officials. The issue also revealed a disconnect between different parts of the health care industry, where the main hospital association disputing the accounts with the main hospital association, disputing the accounts about the adequacy of the supply of life-saving equipment. 
And so they're talking about ventilators. And he's quoting Chris Kippel, chief executive of Ventec Life Systems, which is a ventilator manufacturer in Washington state, just north of us. He says it's a challenge for states, local governments, and hospital administrators to allocate tens of millions of dollars for something if they don't know if they're going to need it. And then Chris Rowland goes on in the Washington Post piece. Just listen to this. Ventilator manufacturers could achieve within a few months a significant boost in production from about 50,000 units a year currently, said Julie Lewitt, a healthcare lawyer with McGuire Woods in Chicago who is monitoring the industry. Orders have not flooded in, she said, because most hospitals can't afford, now keep in mind, a for-profit hospital to them can't afford means we're not going to cut the CEO's pay. We're not going to reduce the dividends we pay to shareholders. Are you friggin' kidding me? Orders have not flooded in, she said, because most hospitals can't afford to increase inventory of expensive equipment for what might turn out to be a short-term event. She said, quote, the risk is that they'll never be used and hospitals can't eat the cost. Most hospitals in this country are not that profitable. And then she notes, and then they note in the article, ventilators range from $25 to $50,000. The article goes on, Donald Trump at a White House press briefing said, we are ordering thousands of thousands of ventilators and they are complex. Well, there's no evidence that he's actually done that. The ventilator manufacturers have not heard from him. The Washington, back to the Washington Post article. Other governments have stocked up on, have rushed to stock up on ventilators. The United Kingdom has asked Rolls-Royce Holdings, which makes jet engines, to make ventilators. Germany ordered 10,000 ventilators from Dragerwerk AG, which Dow Jones says was the company's largest order ever. In the United States, Trump told state officials on a conference call that states and local governments should procure their own equipment. Quote, respirators, ventilators, all that equipment, try getting it yourself, end quote. Trump told the governors, according to the New York Times, which first reported the call. The Trump administration, again, this is the article from the Washington Post, the Trump administration has barely begun to release up to 13,000 older ventilator models cached around the country in the federal strategic national stockpile, saying that state officials have not requested them. Well, they probably haven't requested them because they don't know how or they don't know that you have them, or they don't know how to get them, or the state officials can't request things on behalf of for-profit hospitals that don't want them because they're concerned about the expense. State governments don't run hospitals anymore. I told you when I grew up in Lansing, Michigan, one of the three hospitals in town, St. Lawrence was run by the Catholics, Sparrow was run by a private foundation founded by an automaker multimillionaire, and Ingham Medical was run by Ingham County, which is the county where Lansing, Michigan is. It was run by the government. There aren't any government-run hospitals, to the best of my knowledge, anymore. They've all been privatized. This was Reagan's big innovation. Well, you know, when Reagan came into office, hospitals were required nationwide to be nonprofit organizations, and insurance companies, health insurance companies, were required to be nonprofit organizations. Reagan blew that up, or gave the states the ability to blow that up, and state after state after state did so, and here we are. For-profit hospitals are not ordering ventilators. They're not even asking for them from the strategic stockpile. Meanwhile, Trump is going on TV saying, we're ordering thousands and thousands, lying through his teeth, according to the Washington Post. 
Dan Coyes wrote a great piece over at Slate.com. It's titled, Policy Changes in Reaction to the Coronavirus Reveal How Absurd So Many of Our Rules Are to Begin With. I've seen it reposted around the internet titled, America is a Sham, because that's his refrain throughout this thing. He points out that the airlines are now saying, you know that three ounce rule? Well, if it's hand sanitizer, you can bring up to 12 ounces, no big deal. I mean, no plane has ever fallen out of the sky because somebody brought a liquid on board. I was making jokes about this stuff on the air when the, the TSA first passed this rule. They said, oh, you know, you, you can sneak onto an airplane with two chemicals and mix them in the bathroom and turn it into a bomb. Right, right. It was BS. It was a scam. I, you know, all over America, he points out, Don Coyes points out, all over America, much of contemporary American life is BS with power structures built on punishment and fear as opposed to our best interests. He's talking about how San Antonio, the city of San Antonio is saying, well, why are we keeping our jails crowded with people who might be sick? So they're letting people out who, who can't pay bail. Why do we have cash bail to begin with? Period. The federal government is charging interest on loans to attend college. Well, and Trump has said, well, we're going to have the federal agencies who administer those loans waive the interest accrual for the duration of the crisis. Well, first of all, we haven't seen this put into policy yet. He's just talking. But why on earth is the government charging citizens interest in the first place? Why does the government have to make a profit on student loans? For that matter, why do we even have to have student loans? It's a scam. Broadband caps and throttled internet. He says these have been eliminated by IT and AT&T and, and other ISPs because of the coronavirus. Well, why'd you have them there in the first place? It's a scam. It's a way of squeezing more money out of the customer and out of the consumers. Police in New Orleans, Miami, and New York City will no longer help evict people from their homes on behalf of banksters and landlords. Well, why were they helping in the first place? Police? Really? The city, the, you've got cities around the country, uh, Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan, he says, no Detroit residents should have concerns about whether their water service will be interrupted. They're going to pause cutting people's water off when they don't pay their bills. Why did they cut their water off in the first place? Shouldn't water be a right? I mean, yeah, okay, so you don't pay it. So we go after you for that, figure out a way, garnish, whatever, but cut off your water? Really? Sick employees are forced to work or take unpaid leave or work while sick. Most of the countries of Europe have, this was tweeted a couple of days ago by Bernie Sanders, most of the countries in Europe have 50, up to 50 weeks of paid sick leave or maternity leave or family leave. And we have... And we're, and, we're, and we're, right now, the Democrats in Congress are fighting to get us two weeks? And the Republicans are saying, no, that's too much? I mean, this is the scam that has become America. Now, on top of that, we're looking at the markets just going absolutely nuts. And, I, and I've had people ask me, why is it that mortgage rates are actually going up and bonds don't seem to be, government bonds don't seem to be the great investment they used to be? Why is it that, that the amount of, uh, the, you know, the, the, the interest rates that bonds pay are going up at a time when they should be going down? And it varies from day to day. But why is this? Well, it's because people are hitting margin calls. You've got a whole bunch of, of uh, you know, big investment houses and, and hedge funds and billionaires who have all kinds of money in the stock market. The stock market is tanking. They're bailing out. But in, a lot of it is on margin. And so they're having to raise money to pay these margin calls. 
So how do they raise that money? They sell off their safe securities. They're selling their bonds. As they're selling their bonds, there's less demand for bonds. Less demand for bonds means the bonds have to pay a higher interest rate in order to get people to buy them, which means that bonds are acting in a way that they've never before acted. It's, it's not that people are afraid that you know, the United States government is going to default, although what you're seeing across the country right now is that municipal bonds and state bonds are in trouble because people are concerned that cities are going to default and states are going to default. And then on top of that, we've got this new problem at shrinking access to credit. This was in the Financial Times, or no, in the New York Times, excuse me, by uh, Tiffany Sue and Emily Flitter. Jeffrey Albrecht, who owns three Holiday Inn hotels in southern Ohio, watched as $200,000 disappeared from his books in just three days as people began canceling bookings. Guess what happened? His banker called. He's got a mortgage. He wanted to know how much money could Mr. Albrecht lose before he would miss a loan payment. Albrecht said, probably four months. I mean, you know, this is like small businesses, companies that run on credit, they're, it's going to get harder and harder to get credit because all this money is being sucked out of the system by banks that have been gambling in the stock markets, which is what bit them in the back end on two, in 2008. They're still at it, right? We never put Glass-Steagall back into place. They are still doing this. You've got, and the reason why mortgage rates are going up is because, the, is again, for the same reason, because wealthy people, big investors, institutional investors, and banks are dumping their mortgage-backed securities. Well, if you can't sell the bonds, uh, aggregated bonds, these collateralized security instruments, if you can't sell those things, then you have to raise the interest that you pay. If you have to raise the interest that you pay, you have to raise the interest that you charge. And so what's happening is that mortgage rates are actually going up instead of down, even though the Fed, Jerome Powell, just took our interest rates to zero. But mortgage rates are going up. Why? Again, these wealthy, the masters of the universe, as it were, are sucking their money out of the system because they're having to make margin calls or because they're just trying to get liquid as fast as they can. In the Financial Times, government bonds buckle as investors dump haven assets for cash. Over in the Financial Times, again, mortgage rates increase pressure for Fed intervention. So what people are suggesting to solve this problem is that the Fed become the lender of last resort, not just to the big banks, but to everyone. We'll see how that works out. I mean, there's a million details that need to be worked out, but at least there's a conversation about it. Because if this thing freezes up, it's 2008 all over again. We'll be back. listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting. But Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Mike in Seattle. Hey, Mike, what's up? Hey, Tom, I don't understand why the stock markets are still open. Right after Trump's speech, there was a 15-minute stop. But why are they open 100% of the time that they're normally open when we are practically at war? Even the president is now saying that we are at war. What's the, happening in the past about this? Well, the stock market and didn't close during World War II. They closed right after 9-11 for a day or two, as I recall. And I think did they that have stock markets during the flu epidemic of 1918. I was just going to say, I think right around World War One, there was a period around World War One where they closed just for a few days. But, you know, I saw an article about this a couple of days ago in the Financial Times. And I'm, I'm sorry, I don't recall all the details. But basically, you know, throughout the history of the United States and we've had stock markets literally since the Revolutionary War and the stock markets have basically just never closed. I mean, they didn't close during the Civil War. Trading was very different, of course, but the stock markets didn't close. And they're talking right now about limiting the trading hours. But, yeah. you know, the fact of the matter is uh, most stock markets are now 
you know, it's no longer guys on the trading floor shouting, you know, I want to buy some, you know, it's, it's all done electronically. And so the traders and the companies that through which you, you execute your trades, if you have a Schwab account or a Fidelity account or whatever it may be, those companies, it's all electronic and a lot of their employees are working from home. I got an email yesterday from the company that I have my retirement funds with. And they said, you know, our employees are working from home and here's how, here's how we're handling things like customer service. And if you call, it'll be rerouted to somebody's home and don't be freaked out that it's not quite as normal. But, you know, I don't think that it's going to be a problem, Mike. On the line with us is an economist, Joelle Gamble, an economist and organizer principal with Reimagining Capitalism over at the Omidyar Network, board member of the Roosevelt Institute, the website Omidyar, O-M-I-D-Y-A-R.com, and her Twitter handle is Joelle, J-O-E-L-L-E underscore Gamble, G-A-M-B-L-E. The article she's written for The Nation, thenation.com, is titled A Survival Guide for the Coronavirus Economy. Joelle, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So I just saw this story in the international press. You're active. It's a European news website. I just want to read to you two paragraphs because it, it kind of echoes my sense of the things that you're talking about in your article. Denmark's government, the, the Danish prime minister just held a press conference. Denmark's government told private companies struggling with drastic measures to curb the spread of coronavirus that it would cover 75% of employees' salaries if they promised not to cut staff. Under the three-month aid period that will last until June 9th, the state offers to pay 75% of employees' salaries up to a maximum of 3,418 U.S. dollars, 23,000 Danish crowns per month while the companies pay the remaining 25. The Prime Minister, Fredrickson, said, if there's a big drop in activity and production is halted, we understand the need to send home employees, but we ask you, please don't fire them. I just saw Trump and Pence this morning. They're talking about big loans to big companies in America. But, you know, I don't know that there's any strings attached to those loans like this sort of thing. So, A, what do you think of that? And B, you know, what are your principal recommendations? I think what Denmark is doing is right on the nose, which is recognizing that people are the engine that makes the economy work. But yes, we do have some supply side problems and we should make sure that businesses don't suffer huge losses. But what fundamentally drives the economy is families' abilities to make rent, to buy goods, to take care of themselves and to stay home when they're sick or taking care of others who are high risk. And, you know, that's just about making sure that people have cash. Steve Mnuchin, Trump's Treasury Secretary, just recently announced that the administration is looking into, you know, cash, giving cash to Americans. But it might not be a, a sufficient response. We've yet to see. Although it is a good sign that a lot of advocates call to just give cash directly to American families is working. So to make sure that we have a large enough stimulus and recognizing that the Fed has once again slashed interest rates, now is the time to borrow and invest in good jobs, green infrastructure, and really rebuild the economy to be more resilient in the future. And that's something that I do not think is in the conversation right now. And it's certainly not on the agenda of the president. Right. Over the short term, though, as literally our economy is shutting down, I mean, this is something that I think the last time this country saw anything like this or the world saw anything like this was probably 1918, 1919 with the so-called Spanish flu where factories were closing down because so many people were sick. When Woodrow Wilson went over to Europe to, to sign the peace treaty, he got so sick from the flu, they thought he was going to die. That's a mitigating factor that Franklin Roosevelt in 1933 didn't have to deal with. How specifically, outside of simply 
you know, suspending debt payments or sending money to people or I mean, how how do you do that? We're talking literally trillions of dollars here. Right. So in addition to, you know, cash payments, I think one thing we haven't talked a lot about is the power of the government to buy things. Mm-hmm. For instance, we're worried about ventilators, we're worried about masks, we're worried about test kits. Those are all things that the government has the ability to purchase. And there are now right. companies out there who produce ventilators who are saying, you know, we can ramp up. We just need the demand. And that demand can actually come from government. Um, the government has the power to actually make make business start again. Yeah, there's a ventilator company told Fortune magazine they need a 90-day advance notice. So when we saw this crisis coming back in December, the administration could have contacted them, but they said that they could double, triple, even uh, even beyond that, increase their production of ventilators right now. It takes a few months for them to start coming off the end of the assembly line, but but he said that only government has the means to, to order these in the kind of numbers that are going to be necessary. And all these for-profit hospitals right now are freaking out and hoarding cash rather than buying ventilators. Right, right. Um, and that's, you know, I think that should be the biggest takeaway from all of this is, you know, we've seen decades of weakening of the power of government, you know, conservatives cut taxes and then starve the budgets and we fail to develop these kinds of competencies that other nations have done over the decades. And the Trump administration has been particularly terrible at this. And now in this crisis, government's the only thing that can scale to actually be able to help people. Philanthropy is doing what it can. But this is not philanthropy's job. It's not necessarily the place for philanthropy to do all of this alone. And, you know, individual communities are doing what they can. We're seeing local organizations popping up with relief funds for service workers. But this is frankly the federal government's job to stimulate the economy, provide cash. You know, if it's going to talk about bailing out companies, make sure that those bailouts actually go to workers, workers' health care, keeping workers employed at those companies if they're getting money from the federal government, and then using its purchasing power to ramp up the kinds of resources that we need to stem the epidemic. Because if we don't control it, you know, there's no other way to get the economy restarted again. In 1929, Andrew Mellon, who was the Treasury Secretary for Herbert Hoover, when the Great Crash happened, it might have been early 1930, actually, said, liquidate everything, right? It'll be a good thing. It'll get rid of the dead wood in the economy. And I'm looking at these giant airlines that have basically created monopolies in our air industry and have been ripping us off for years. And in Axios this morning, uh, they pointed out 96% of their free cash flow over the last 10 years has been used for share buybacks. In other words, to inflate mm-hmm. the, the stock, stock price so that their senior executives who are paid with stock make more money, basically. They're just taking all this cash themselves. And I'm thinking... Yeah, small companies, the, the, the bar down the street or the restaurant down the street, I would like the government to bail them out or you know, make it easy for banks to bail them out or whatever. But if United Airlines goes under, it seems to me like that opens an opportunity for somebody you know, to start an airline company. I mean, is it time for us to think you know, kind of a hybrid of Andrew Mellon and Franklin Roosevelt together, protect the little guy, but these big guys who've just been stealing us blind for 40 years, to hell with them, or am I being too severe here? I think there's a balance between the long-run developing of better companies that are accountable to their workers and to the customers they serve, and then the short-run need to make sure that the airline pilots, the flight attendants who are putting out statements about their views on the bailouts right now you know, are actually protected, because we don't want mm. those workers to suffer as a result. And so making yeah. sure that 
government assistance that's targeted at these industries is really actually targeted at the workers in those industries who are actually the ones who are most likely going to suffer if a company goes under. So it's the, it's the Danish example then that, that really we need to exactly. be looking at that, you know, yes, we will give you money, United Airlines, but you have to give that money to your employees. <laughs> it's, exactly. keep, keep them paid even if you're not flying airplanes. I get it. Mm-hmm. Joelle Gamble. Joelle, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Joelle's article, A Survival Guide for the Coronavirus Economy, is over at The Nation, thenation.com. You can check it out. And your Twitter handle is Joelle underscore Gamble. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's our national support group here during a time of crisis, the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Lori in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Lori, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I wanted to say a couple of things. I'm calling my senators and asking them to give funding to the people that want to make the respirators. And secondly, I called Airbnb, and I have a house that I use part-time for work and it sits empty. I'm, I'm extremely blessed. I know that. But I asked them, why couldn't we let these be quarantined? houses for medical staff when they don't want to go home. I have friends who are doctors and midwives, and they're Mm. really scared of taking it home to their families. And so how could we, all these empty houses sitting, couldn't we make these quarantine zones for them when they think they may have been infected so they don't have to go home? That's a really great idea. What did they say? They said that they don't have the infrastructure, but they have the open door program, which I'm signed up for in the case of a national emergency or like hurricanes and other places and that kind of thing. And so I'm rewriting them, but what a perfect, nobody's staying in Airbnbs right now. And why not put them to good use? I just, other people can call Airbnb and and use these well, and this places. is something Maybe they that, could, uh, but this is something that hospitals should be paying for, right? The hospitals should be providing their staff. You know, if you're if you're working in the ER, if you're working in the front lines, and you have a high risk of being exposed, and you don't want to take it home to your family, particularly if your family includes somebody in a high risk category, we will provide you with housing, and we'll do it through Airbnb. You know, why not? I mean, that's great because then you know, in the Airbnb, you're not exposing like if you're staying in a hotel you're exposing the staff of the hotel to your own possible infection. And the problem is that from the time you get infected until the time you show symptoms can be up to 14 days. And during that entire period of time, you can be infectious. Whereas with the common cold, the flu, you're typically only infectious the day before you show symptoms. And that's why this is spreading so rapidly. It's why it's spreading you know, geometrically rather than um, arithmetically. So, yeah, that's a great suggestion, Lori. I love it. That's a great you, suggestion. And one other quick, quick thing is in Italy, they're locked down and people are really struggling and they're letting them out one by one to go to stores. And I unfortunately think that might happen here. And all of the kids mm-hmm. and artistic people who are at home are making signs that they're putting in their windows that say everything will be fine. So that when people walk to the store, they just keep reading that over and over. And I know one important thing is keeping our immunity up. And when I get stuck in the fear, I can just feel myself closing down. And when I read that story coming out of Italy where they're right in the midst of it thinking there's hope, if we could all do that here, even for our medical people to drive by and see signs that say everything will be okay, it gives me personally a sense of peace reading that. So maybe... 
we could start a movement here where we post those in our windows. Yeah, so that's great, especially in urban areas. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. Or, you know, even make yard signs. Uh, we will get through this. We are, you know, we are Americans. We are a community. We care for each other. Lori, thank you for that. It's, it's, it's great hearing from you. And that was a, a marvelous uh, little story. And, and we do need to keep reminding ourselves we will get through this. And frankly, as I said, I think this is going to make America a stronger and better and more resilient country. I think this puts the lie to the neoliberal ideology. I think that our, our politics <laughs> and frankly, our business structures are going to be very, very different a little bit down the road. Thank you for that. So my little rant for the day that I posted over at Facebook was pretty straightforward, and here it is. Dear airlines, hotel chains, banks, and other industries who are begging Donald Trump and Congress for bailouts, get in the friggin' line. Most of you didn't even pay taxes last year. The front of the line this time needs to be people with medical and student debt, people who've lost their jobs, people who are homeless, and people working in the gig economy. Everybody else, get in the effing line. In 2008, the Bush administration, actually the Fed, was able to find over $20 trillion to bail out the banks and insurance companies. And the billionaires, by the way, they were making direct payments to billionaires, the Fed was, in 2008. Last year, Donald Trump found $1.5 trillion to cut taxes to the billionaires in America's largest corporations. It's not going to happen again if we have anything to say about it. They can all get in the effing line behind the rest of us human beings here. That was, that was my statement. And I stand by it. And in fact, the airline's asking for a $50 billion bailout. Yeah, they're going to be in trouble. They're going to be in bad, bad trouble. They already are. And Trump said, well, we're going to back the airlines 100%. Here's the thing. You either believe in capitalism or you don't. It really comes down to that. Do you believe in capitalism, Donald Trump, or do you not? Because if you believe in capitalism, then you know that sometimes companies fail especially big companies like big airlines. And what that does is it creates a market opportunity for small companies. And that would not, in my opinion, be a bad thing. In fact, it might be a very good thing. Now, I realize that there are a lot of small businesses out there that are small businesses, independently owned, things like that. And for those companies, I'm all in favor of helping them. That's not capitalism, that's free enterprise. But these giant corporations, for example, this is from the Axios newsletter today. The five biggest US airlines spent 96% of their free cash flow over the past decade buying back their own stock. 96% of their cash flow went to buy back their stock. That's bankster activity. That's arbitrage. They're buying their own stock to jack the stock price up so that the senior executives and the CEOs who are paid largely in stock are making a friggin' fortune. So basically all of that profit that the airlines are making, they're converting into shareholder dividends. And their shareholders love it and you know their senior executives are all massive shareholders. Well, they could have been putting it into a rainy day fund. They could have been capitalizing their pension funds for their employees. They could have been setting aside money for, you know, I, I mean, there's so many things they could have done with that money, but instead they put it in their friggin' pockets. And now they want a bailout? Really? I, I don't think so. The early reporting that we're getting from the New York Times on what 
Trump's Mnuchin's $850 billion bailout would look like is that much like uh, Bush's back in 2008 for the initial bailout, most of it goes to big corporations. Most of it goes to corporations. They're, they're saying out of the $850 billion, workers would get $100 billion. David K. Johnston is uh, writing over at the Raw Story. He said, if you distribute $100 billion to 168 million people, the working people of this country, we have 168 million people who work, um, that's about one week's wage for everybody. But if you distribute it to just people make under, who make under 33,000, the bottom half of workers, that's not even enough for two weeks of wage. Mnuchin is talking about, we're going to send everybody a check. Good. We need to be doing that. We need to be sending every American some cash right now. And, and we need to be making sure that anyone who has lost their job as a result of this, and start with the obvious stuff, but it just, it's going to ripple right through the economy. Food service workers, waiters, servers in restaurants, cooks, uh, the, the maintenance, I mean, just the whole, there's entire industries that right now are frozen and are going to very quickly start melting down. And we need to catch the people. We need, with, in, with regard to the small businesses, we need to catch them too, because businesses owned by people, by individuals, by families in some cases. But these big corporations, these giant monster corporations, five airlines control the vast majority. I, I don't have the percentage, but it's huge. So 80, 90% of all air travel in the United States. I'm with Andrew Mellon. Andrew Mellon was Herbert Hoover's Secretary of the Treasury. And he said, let them liquidate, liquidate everything. Well, the problem was, you know, he let the big companies be liquidated. He, did, he also let the small companies be liquidated. And he let the people be liquidated. And that's why Franklin Roosevelt came in. And ultimately, if Trump wants to be successful, and if Steve Mnuchin wants to be successful, and as I said, I want them to be successful, this is a crisis that's not going to wait for a Democratic president to be installed. If they want to be successful, they need to look at what Franklin Roosevelt did in 1933 at the depths of the Great Depression when one-third of Americans were out of work and people were healthy and they could go to work. I mean, there wasn't an overlay of a, of a public health crisis like there is right now. So it's even more important now to do what FDR did, only do more of it. FDR created the WPA, hired a million people. The Works Progress Administration, they built roads and bridges and buildings. He created the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, hired another million people. They planted trees all over the country to stop the Dust Bowl. It worked. I mean, we, can, we could have massive programs, massive government programs, although right now during this crisis, let's just direct cash to Americans. We will get through this, my friends. We will get through this. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the Tom Hartman Program. A little bit of levity here. This is out of Las Vegas. Of course, it's from Las Vegas. Little Darling Strip Club will begin offering drive-through strip shows for those who want to indulge in some adult entertainment but don't want to enter the building. Ten-minute shows run 100 bucks. Tips encouraged. 
And then he says, on Saturday, we're doing nude triple X hand sanitizer wrestling. Hand sanitizing stations are every 15 feet. We're taking everyone's temperature at the door. You have to be six feet from anybody else. We're complying with everything that's been recommended by the CDC. Very strange. Drive-through strip shows. Right. Only in Vegas. Oh, man. This was all over NPR this morning. I was listening this morning, and they were recapping this story. A couple of days ago, they were talking about how Richard Burr had met with a whole bunch of high-dollar donors and told them this is going to be like the flu pandemic of 1918. This was weeks ago. Now it comes out that at the same time he was telling them that in private, he was unloading stock like there's no tomorrow. He sold up to a million and a half dollars worth of stock. And it turns out Republican, Georgia Republican Kelly Loeffler did the same thing. She dumped millions in stock. And oddly enough, she's saying, well, that's just a coincidence, except two of her 29 transactions were actually purchases. And one of those purchases was Citrix, which is the company that makes and sells go to my PC, go to my meeting. They used to be an advertiser on the show. They got all these programs for working from home. And by the way, Kelly Loeffler's husband is the president of the New York Stock Exchange. Now, are you curious if he was dumping stocks? Keep in mind, this was weeks before the market crashed. This was two weeks before the market crashed. And then we find out that there's a third Republican senator, and maybe a fourth, Senator Ron Johnson, who just this week was saying, this was on uh, Tuesday, he's the Republican senator from Wisconsin, these are all Republican senators, says the flip side of this vast is the vast majority of people who get the coronavirus do survive. That means 97 and 99 percent will get through this, develop immunities, and will be able to move beyond this. We don't shut down our economy because tens of thousands of people die on the highways. It's a risk we accept so we can move about. We don't shut down our economies because tens of thousands of people die from the common flu. Getting coronavirus is not a death sentence except for maybe 3.4 percent of our population. Well, let's see. Uh, 330 million people. Let's say, let's be conservative and say less than two-thirds of us get it. Let's say it's only 200 million people. What's 3.4% of 200 million? Uh, If I'm doing my math right, that's 6.8 million people. That's like three times all the people who have died in all our wars. But, you know, Ron Johnson says it's just fine. Uh, But it turns out that he was unloading stock, too. So he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. There's also some suggestions that uh, Senator Perdue out of Georgia was also unloading stock. Now, Dianne Feinstein has put all of her investments in a blind trust. So she does not talk to the trustee. They don't talk to her. She has no control over it. The headline over on Fox News's website that I saw last night, about the same time that these stories were breaking, was Senator Feinstein and three other senators unloading stock during the crisis. Well, Feinstein's blind trust has to file these reports for the federal government showing what they bought and sold. And yeah, they sold some stock. But it is a virtual certainty that Feinstein had nothing to do with that because their stuff is in a blind trust. All these Republican senators did not put their assets in a blind trust. Instead, they're, they're you know, buying and selling themselves, apparently on insider information. Meanwhile, we're seeing the Republican stimulus plan, the one that Mitch McConnell has been working out with the other 52 Republicans in the Senate. We just saw the first peak of it last night. Richard Trumka says, President of the AFL-CIO, he says, the Senate GOP package is an utter disgrace. It gives free money to corporations. It ignores the health crisis. It does nothing to keep people working or to help the unemployed. And he says that the labor movement is going to oppose it. 
Uh, Daniel Hemmel, who is at the University of Chicago Law School, said, I don't know how else to describe this, but wantonly wicked. The poorest get zero. Low-income households get half of what middle-income households get, and kids count 40% of an adult. And Chuck Schumer has come out and said, this looks like a bailout for the rich. This doesn't look like the kind of thing that we would be in favor of. You know, get ready. The right-wing billionaires fully own the Republican Party, including all the Republicans in the Senate, with the possible exception of Mitt Romney, because he's one of them. There's a great summary in the Axios newsletter today, Mike Allen's newsletter. He says it's no longer that this could be bad for the economy. The layoffs are starting. He says we're heading toward a $2 trillion deficit, invoking wartime powers, although Trump, while he signed the act and bragged about it on television yesterday, has yet to use it. This from uh, the Oregonian today, the, you know, our local newspaper owned by a New York company. Oregon jobless claims surge 3,200%. You heard that right. Not, not, not 3%, 3,200%. The state's unemployment, an Oregon business leader predicted the state's unemployment rate could rise as high as 20% next month or the month after and that nearly a half a million people in Oregon will be looking for work. I think the population of our state is between three and four million. On Tuesday alone, now keep in mind, the average number of claims that the Oregon unemployment system, and this is just, we're just one little state. We had 10 new cases last night. I think we're up to something like 70 here in Oregon. I mean, we're not New York or Washington state. We're just a little state and we're just having little, little outbreaks. We average 570 claims a day and Tuesday, 18,500 people in Oregon filed for unemployment insurance. Tuesday. So back to Axios, he's talking about hospitals and government agencies are trying to throw enough medical supplies together. Hospitals are postponing elective procedures, even organ transplants. New York, NYU, New York University's now vacant dorms could be turned into hospital rooms. The governor and the mayor are looking at this. Cities are looking at motels, vacant buildings, even RVs for quarantine sites. Trump calling himself a wartime president, freed up military manufacturing tools. Well, yes, but no, he's not using them. It's just cosmetic. So then the economic crisis is going on. In phase one of the crisis, share prices sink. Of course, that's happening. Louise thinks the Dow is going to get to 15,000. I think it's going to get to 6,000, which is where it was in 2008. But who knows? I mean, we'll see. At first, there was the $840 million plan that the Democrats passed through the House, went to the Senate, and they said, okay, we'll, you know, $840 million would do that. They were on a second one, a trillion-dollar plan. This is the one that has a $1,000 or $2,000 check for everyone. We don't know yet. About half the money is going to go to needy Americans. The other half of the trillion dollars goes to, to billionaires and big corporations. Probably a few hundred corporations and a few thousand billionaires. But the working class is facing a very, very real recession. Meanwhile, on Wall Street, bankers and traders are trying to sell everything that's not nailed down. J.P. Morgan issued their expectations. It was a research note yesterday titled, The Day the Earth Stood Still. And they're saying in the second quarter, now January, February, March are the first quarter, so the second quarter starts in about a week and a half. And they're saying the second quarter, you're going to see a contraction of the U.S. GDP by 14%, 22% the Eurozone. I think those are very conservative numbers. The most dire warning came from Pershing Square Capital Management CEO Bill Ackman, 
who went on CNBC to beg President Trump. He said, until a vaccine is manufactured, distributed, and injected, we will go through a Depression-era period in this country. And I believe he's the CEO. I saw this on the CNBC, uh, CNBC story this morning, but I don't have it right in front of me who actually started crying on the air. One of the giant hedge fund or investment fund owners, billionaire guys was on CNBC yesterday crying about this. It harkens back to 1929, 1930, when you, know, you had stories of bankers jumping out of buildings. We're learning now that in the United States, the statistics that we saw coming out of China don't seem to be holding up in the United States. We seem to have a very different patient profile. This is probably because China started aggressive testing of people back in, um, in December. And South Korea started aggressive testing of people in January. We have not yet begun aggressive testing of people. By aggressive, I mean like pretty much anybody who wants it, anybody who's sick, all of their contacts, everybody, right? This is how Singapore is not seeing new cases. China is not seeing new cases. They've got this under control. Japan and South Korea are seeing very, very small increases in new cases, 70, 80 new cases a day. That's it. Because they know who's sick and who's not, and they've got them locked down because they have distributed hundreds of thousands of tests throughout the country. But the patient profile in the United States, 38% of the patients who were so severely sick that they needed to be hospitalized were between 20 and 54 years old. And nearly half of the patients who were admitted to ICU units in, in the New York hospitals, this is from the New York Times by Pam Bollock, nearly half of the patients admitted to ICUs in New York are under 65. And then they tell this tragic story about uh, Grace Fusco, 73, died in a Jer Jersey hospital hours after her son died in Pennsylvania, five days after their eldest child, Rita Jackson, 55, died. Four of the children remain hospitalized. Nearly 20 other relatives are quarantined. I mean, these are the kind of stories we're going to start seeing. We just need to get ready for it. And we need to figure out ways to get more tests out. Uh, yeah, or, or Donald Trump needs to figure out a way to get more tests out. And, you know, governors are scrambling, hospitals are running out of supplies. This is a crisis that is here in the United States. It is not a crisis right now in Singapore. In Singapore, people are back to work. Because in Singapore, they planned for it. They were ready for it. They had the SARS thing that ran through Singapore, and they built out the infrastructure for it. When that happened, Obama started building the infrastructure at the Department of Homeland Security and the National Security Council. Trump fired them all two years ago. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And a special, by the way, a special thanks to our crew who are pitching in and working out and doing yeoman's work in a scary time. Sean in the studio and Joyce in the studio answering phones and being very, very careful and social distancing and everything else. I'm here at home. Nate is doing our video work from home. So if you're watching us on YouTube or on Free Speech TV or on Facebook Live or on Twitter, you may see glitches from now and then. And if you're listening on the radio, the audio quality is is not quite what it typically is, but you know we're doing the absolute best that we can, and I think we're doing a pretty damn good show at that. And I just want to acknowledge uh, everybody who's working with me, and, and Nigel and Sue, who Nigel who keeps up our website, who are working from home, and Sue Nethercutt, who does our newsletter every day with a list of all the articles that and every story that I've talked about during the show in it. Sue's Daily Stack, and it's free, and you can find it all over TomHartman.com. Patrick and Jerry Lynn, who put together our podcasts. 
and Jamie, who does our hardcore webmastering stuff. He's working from home. He's out in, I believe, Kentucky or Tennessee. But uh, we got people scattered literally all over the globe working on this program, Nigel and Sewer in the UK. And Nate, thank you all. And thank you for listening and, and watching and supporting our, our nonprofit stations and Free Speech TV and supporting our for-profit stations and, the, and letting their advertisers know that you're listening. We are seeing advertising dropping off rather precipitously. You know, it's going to be a tough time for our business just like it is for every other business. We are going to get through this. We're doing everything we can. We may be taking some advertisers that we normally wouldn't be running, but hey, it's a pandemic. So we'll all get over that, right? We could all agree to that. Leslie in Springfield, Missouri. Hey, Leslie, what's up? Hi, Tom. How are you? Good. Just want to say God bless you and your staff. And I'm in Springfield, Missouri, where we have at least two confirmed cases. Streets are quieter. The skies have gone silent. I had been contract working, and I'm currently searching for work. My thought was, you know, we have Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, Republican senator, saying to give us any kind of help would be incentivizing laziness, which irks me to no end. But I'm willing to work. I don't have children. I don't have a, I'm willing to die <laughs> to, you know, if, if they could create some kind of manufacturing of these ventilators or, or you know, I'm, I'm going to a... Um, an orientation at our career center Tuesday. I called to sign up for it. They limit to 10. I got in. Hopefully there's something out there, but I'm, I'm fully willing to work and put my life on the line. But I mean, you know, where are we going from here when there's a span of possibly 18 months of getting through this track? Well, this is why I'm saying, and I, I started saying this yesterday, that we need a 10 to $15 trillion bailout, basically, of the American people, not of American industry. And American mm -hmm. industry needs to just like freeze in amber for a while. And the American people yeah. need to be supported. Uh, we've got a $20 trillion. Well, half of us are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. About $4 trillion of that is government spending, which means we've got around a $16 trillion economy. Well, I think you can safely shave, you know, five, six, seven trillion off of that, you know, the, that is money that's going to corporations and fat cats. And that leaves probably six or seven trillion dollars a year that is going to salaries. And, and I'm just doing this back of the envelope math here. The real numbers are out there someplace. And whatever yeah, that is, is you know, probably half of that needs to be replaced. Yeah, but, but half, yeah. probably about half of that needs to be replaced. And, and that's where we go. Leslie, good luck. And thanks for watching us on Facebook. Uh, Peter, watching us on YouTube. Hey, Peter, uh, we have a minute left. What's up? A little less than. Yes, sir. Uh, last night, we had our first person die in the state from the Canarsie virus. The governor, Einhoff, and Langford all ignored this problem, but it didn't mm -hmm. wake the people up until, until they hit them in a pocketbook. Goodyear Tire Company is the largest tire factory in the world, closed down today. And now the, oh, uh, the streets, yeah, so, uh, the street, everybody's there, as usual in the stores shopping, so. Now, yeah. now that's that's because they're all watching Fox News and listening to right-wing hate radio, and they think that this is just like the flu. It's really unfortunate. Peter, thank you for the call. Keep yourself safe there in Lawton, Oklahoma. And thanks again for watching us on YouTube. Don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport, and your friends and neighbors and relatives need you, and you need to reach out to them. Be nice to somebody today. Find a, find a way. And get out in nature. Go out and take a walk if you possibly can. Um, social distance yourself, but be good to yourself. Tag your it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.